Jeff said, my name is Bruce Case. I had the privilege of serving as one of the elders here and the even greater privilege of opening the word with you together today. But before we do so, let me first lead us in a prayer for some of the needs that I know exist in the church. Um, we don't know all the needs. Let's just confess that to begin with. Um, but we pray that you will get more and more connected, each of you, so that we can get to know you. Um, whether it would be an elder or a pastor that you would share the need with or just a brother or sister. Um, we're a community. We're a body. When one member suffers, we all suffer. And so I encourage you to be honest and open and transparent. We would love to pray for you, whatever your needs are. But let's lift some of them up to the Lord now. Father God, you are our healer. You are our redeemer. You are the one who lifts our head. And I want to pray very specifically now that you lift the head of those who are struggling with depression among us. I know they're here. And there's more here than I know because people do not share openly always about such things. Father God, would you make your promises real and precious and beyond that, Lord, personal? Because so often the person struggling with depression believes the promises are true for everyone but them. That is not true. They are true for any who will turn to you, Lord. And so we just pray that you lift the depression. Likewise, Lord, we pray that you would relieve the anxiety that I know so many feel. They've gotten a bad report from the doctor or they've gotten bad financial news or whatever it might be. And rather than find it easy and natural to rest in you, um, they struggle and they focus on the bad news and not on their great Savior. And so I just pray that 1 Peter 5, 7 would become real to them, that they would cast all their anxiety upon you because you care for them. Father, we also want to lift up those who have lost family members, especially spouses recently. There are several, not just among members, but I know among visitors, Lord. Um, would you comfort them? Would you be close to them? Would you help them walk through the most jarring season of transition as they figure out what life looks like now in a, in a house where they are most probably alone? Let them know that they are not alone. Let them feel your presence and let them feel the presence of their brothers and sisters in this church. And Father, we also want to pray for marriages. There are some really good, solid marriages in this body. Make them even better. Make them a better reflection of your love for your bride. And then there are marriages who are a little cold. They're doing okay, but would you open their eyes to what a glorious gift a spouse is? And would you rekindle affection and respect and honor and zeal to make the spouse feel treasured as they should? And then, Father, there, there are marriages that are at the breaking point. Father, don't let them break. Make the joy and the hope of a covenant renewal of, of just a, a reawakening of what needs to be done to love a spouse. We're both sinners, Lord. We all end up in a house together with another person who needs just as much grace as we do. 
Father, would you bring that grace and heal marriages, we pray. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, apart from his sacrifice, apart from his love, uh, we could not come to you. Instead, we are told to come boldly, and so we do this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. In the days of the judges, when no king ruled in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes, God sent a famine, a discipline, on the city of Bethlehem. A man of Bethlehem, Elimelech, took his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Chilion, to the neighboring country of Moab, and they settled there. I won't review all the reasons why that was not a good idea. Uh, if you're not here with us last week, I would simply send you to Numbers 25 and to Deuteronomy 23, and you will discover that Moab was not the place to go. It was a land and a people who had opposed God's people every step of the way, and as a result, Israel is commanded, you will never seek the welfare of a Moabite. Well, Elimelech dies in Moab, and his two sons then take Moabite wives. Um, Orpah and Ruth are their names. After 10 years, both sons die, and the families are childless. There, there was no birth recorded for either Ruth or Orpah. So now Naomi... Orpah and Ruth are all left as widows. That's just the first five verses of the book of Ruth, and they summarize what we referred to last week as, as the frowning providence of God. It doesn't look good for these women. But the frown lifts a bit in verse 6, where we hear that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. So Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem, and with her, uh, Orpah and Ruth begin that journey. But Naomi has, has a very bitter and bleak assessment of the situation that faces them. Uh, there's no hope in Bethlehem, there's no future in Bethlehem, and most specifically, she said there's no husbands in Bethlehem. Not that there's not men, but there's a particular custom, law, in Israel where close relatives could marry the widow and raise up a son in the dead man's name. And she just says, there's nobody that can do that. I don't have any more sons. There's no point in you coming back with me. Orpah returns to Moab. Ruth, however, will not turn back, but makes a vow to never depart from Naomi. More importantly, though, Ruth makes a vow to never depart from the Lord. Even after Naomi dies, she says, where, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Naomi's quite a bit older. She'll probably pass first, and Ruth says, I'm not going back to Moab. I'm staying <clears throat> with the covenant people. Your God will be my God. When they, get <clears throat> when they get back to Bethlehem, the women of the city exclaim, Can this be Naomi? Apparently, the past decade-plus <clears throat> of hardship have just so changed her countenance that people look at her and say, that is Naomi, but they're surprised by how she appears. They do a double-take. We're told she's wrestling with bitterness, which I think we're to understand and sympathize with, even if we do not endorse it. God can handle it when his people are struggling with grief. 
Among other things, he knows that grief and bitterness will not have the last word. In fact, I think one of the reasons that we find Ruth in the scriptures is an encouragement that we might be reminded that even in our grief, even when husbands and sons and family members and spouses are all gone, our God is still a gracious God. There's hope, even for people who have gone through what Naomi has gone through. William Cooper was right when he wrote, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And the smile of God is coming. It was hinted at in chapter 1, which is of a series of three reversals. The first is seen in that the chapter began in a famine, and it ended with a barley harvest. Great reversal. The second is seen in Naomi leaving Bethlehem in verse 1, but returning in verse 19. And the third is seen in her leaving with Elimelech, Malon, and Chilion, but returning with Ruth. Now, that last contrast is something that Naomi describes as a bad thing. She says in verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I understand her feeling this way, but she's not right, is she? As this story unfolds, I would argue she went out empty and returned full. Without any disrespect or callousness towards Elimelech or his sons, the story God is telling, the unfolding story of redemption, doesn't pass through them. It passes through Ruth. In chapter 4, Ruth is declared rightly to be better to Naomi than seven sons. I'm not suggesting that she's responsible to see into the future and to know how things are going to work out, what the secret will of God is, and, and how he's going to turn this emptiness into fullness. Only that she's wrong when she says, everything that's gone on for the past ten years has left me empty. The truth is God wants Ruth in Bethlehem. But he wants her there not as a married woman, married to Malon or Chilean. He wants her there as a widow, as a destitute widow, as, as a woman from a people that, that says, I have no claim on the God of Israel. Not only that, he wants her there as a woman of faith. And against all human odds, she is. We saw that last week with the frequent repetition of the word for return. It shows up, I believe, 12 times. Return, return, return. And in the Old Testament, that word refers far more often to a spiritual return than any kind of physical return. And how can Ruth return to, to, to uh, Bethlehem? She's never been there. This is a spiritual transformation. It's made explicit when she declares in verse 16, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So God has used a famine, three deaths, a time of being a refugee in Moab to finally get all the characters in place back in Bethlehem. And as the story that God is telling continues to unfold, I think even Naomi may come to agree, he brought me back full. So now let's move into chapter 2. The stage is set for this frowning providence to continue to lift and for the clouds to part a little bit and for the smiling face of God to be seen by all. 
The chapter very neatly divides into two scenes. Uh, the first is focused on the meeting between um, Ruth and Boaz, and the second on Naomi's response to that meeting. We'll take them one at a time. So if you have your Bibles open, we'll be in Ruth chapter 2 now, starting in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the serpent who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not like one of your servants. At the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, and it's showing so clearly in at least four ways in just this meeting between Ruth and Boaz. First, see it in the fact that Boaz exists. Contrary to what Naomi thought, and said there's no one who can help us. Here's Boaz. He's introduced to us in the first verse and we're told he's a relative. Now, did Naomi forget about him? Did she not know whether he survived the famine? Did, did she think he had moved? We're not told. 
what we are told is that he's there. Naomi had said there's no hope, there's no one to help us, and the first thing that happens is God says there's Boaz. So there's a barley harvest that began, that's the end of chapter 1, and there's a Boaz on the scene at the beginning of chapter 2. There are two gracious things that are inserted into the story back to back to say, Naomi, it's not hopeless. And the author helps us to see in just a number of ways that this, this man, this relative Boaz, is the sort of man who might just be inclined to help. The term translated worthy in verse 1 that describes is, is a really rich term. Um, the same Hebrew word is used to describe Ruth in 3.11 as a worthy woman. The New American Standard translates it as wealthy in verse 1. And then when it gets to verse 3.11 about Ruth, it's a woman of excellence. The King James brings it all together in, in really a beautiful way and calls Boaz a mighty man of wealth. Another translation just calls Boaz a man of standing. And the point is, he's good. He's rich. He's prominent. This is an excellent man. Some of us have relatives that we don't have so much hope for. But right away, this is introduced as saying, this is a good man that is seen. He's also a godly man. Notes the first words out of his mouth. The Lord be with you. Not many of us are going to start work tomorrow morning and have our boss greet us in that way. But Boaz does. That's him. He's the first reason that we're to see hope building in this chapter. The author's letting us know that, that Naomi, which means pleasant, will not be called bitter or Mara for very long. That's one. Second, I want us to see God's smile in the details of the meeting between Ruth and Boaz. Note verse 3 tells us, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. In other words, this wasn't planned. The, in fact, the, the author makes clear that neither Ruth nor Boaz know each other. They don't know who they are. Boaz has to ask the workers for the identity of Ruth. Verse 5, at the end of the day, Ruth tells Naomi, uh, the man's name with whom I work today is, is Boaz. She doesn't know him, doesn't know that Naomi knows him. She's learned his name. She doesn't know he's a relative. And Naomi's going to have to tell her that all-important fact. The point is, the author makes clear that they don't know each other so that we don't read into their meeting a scheme that, hey, I know to tell you where to go glean. Boaz is a good guy. Go glean in his field. This is God bringing them together of all the farmers, all the field people, all the fields that she could have gone into. She goes in to one field, and it's the field of Boaz. Third, we're to see the smile of God as Boaz immediately shows great care and concern for Ruth. Though by her own words, she says, I'm a foreigner. I, I don't deserve any of this. She falls to the ground and asks in verse 10, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And note how extensive the favor is. She says, he says, glean only in my fields. He commands his workers 
uh, that, that she not be bothered or harassed in any way. Remember where she's from. She's from Moab, a country where the women are known for, how do you say this delicately, very corrupt sexual morals. And here she shows up as a widow in a country she doesn't belong from a country like that. This is a timely word that Boaz gives to say, don't you touch her. Beyond that, she's invited to drink from the water drawn by the servants. She's just brought into the community. Um, Boaz then invites her to join him and his workers for lunch. He gives her wine to dip her bread in, and he personally serves her roasted grain. Um, the servants are then commanded to make the job as easy as possible. Let her follow close behind you, pull some handfuls out. Let's see how much grain we can send her home with. Boaz is bending over backwards to make this a good day for Ruth. And fourth, I think we're to see God's smile in that this care speaks not just of pity or compassion or even generosity, but also of romantic interest. God is going to do far more than just feed this young widow. Think about it. If your concern is simply to care for Naomi and Ruth, and you're a wealthy person, well then just send her a bushel of grain. Redeem Naomi's land. There's much easier ways to take care of Ruth and Naomi than what Boaz was going through, but Boaz wasn't looking for easy. He was looking for ways to keep Ruth around. Everything he did was designed to keep her in his fields. Everything he did was to communicate he would not let anyone hurt her. He wanted her to know that she'd be safe and provided for while under his care. And I can't put yourself at the table or whatever they were eating at now, and I cannot help but see the workers kind of exchanging glances and maybe smiling a little bit at one another. They know exactly what's going on. They can see that their boss is smitten. They can see that, that he's doting on this young widow from Moab. They're not stupid. They're not blind. I hope we aren't either. There is a budding romance here, at least on the part of Boaz. And I think we should see just why Boaz was interested in Ruth. She may or may not have been pretty. We're not told. We are told that he admired her for good and godly reasons. When Ruth fell on her face and bowed to the ground and said, why are you showing me favor? The answer Boaz gives is that he has heard and now seen something of her character. Verse 11. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I find it interesting that after a famine which ravages the land, that Boaz is still single. Surely, a wealthy, single, godly man coming out of a time of, of economic devastation is a pretty eligible bachelor. But he stayed single. 
until Ruth comes along and he, she catches his eye. She's a woman of devotion, a woman of integrity, a woman of faith, and he is interested. So what have we seen? We've seen that there is a Boaz and he is a worthy man. We've seen that God arranges a meeting between the two of them. We've seen that Boaz is incredibly kind and generous and protective. And we've seen, at least it appears, that there is some romantic interest in this young widow. All of these are the smile of God that are beginning to peek out behind those dark clouds of providence that mark the early chapters, or the early verses of chapter 1. But now the question remains, will Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, see the smile of God in any of this? Will she respond to these kindnesses as Mara, bitter, or as Naomi, pleasant? Well, the last seven verses of chapter 2 will answer that question for us. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. An ephah of barley is just a little bit more than a bushel. It's about five gallons dry measure. The value of that much food, that much barley, is about two weeks' wages. And she just gathered it in a single day of reaping. And this is much more than Naomi expected. And so Naomi said, what happened? Where did you go? Who took notice of you? Because it's obvious this is not a normal amount of harvest. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. That's not Mara. That's Naomi. I want you to see something here that I just find wonderfully practical. When, when somebody feels abandoned by God, when they just feel like he has turned against them and everything is going wrong, it is amazing how even small acts of kindness can rekindle hope. A bushel basket of barley does not change Naomi's long-term situation. It doesn't redeem her fields. It doesn't set her up for, for the rest of her life. It, it covers her for a couple of weeks. But note how it's lifted her spirits. File that away. Probably none of us in here are in a position to solve every problem for some other person. You don't have the resources to do that. God does. We don't. But all of us are in a position to do something kind, something encouraging, something generous that will build the faith of someone else who's been getting knocked about a bit by frowning providence. Uh, to see just how quickly and how thoroughly Naomi's countenance changes based on a bushel of barley, note the last three things that she has said that the author has recorded. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Chapter 2, verse 2, go, my daughter. 
chapter 2, verse 19. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Do you see the progression? A single act of kindness did so much for Naomi's countenance and for her hope. Bitterness gave way to a kind of resigned reality. Go, glean, it can't hurt. When she sees what what Ruth brings back, she begins to be grateful, thankful, and hopeful. Ruth 2.19 now. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed to the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The bushel of barley had lifted Naomi from bitterness and resignation to gratitude. Finding out that it came from a man named Boaz lifted her from gratitude to worship. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Why? What's the big deal about Boaz besides the fact that he's generous? Something Naomi discerned even before she knew it was Boaz. Well, in verse 20, note Naomi describes Boaz as a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, a close relative who can redeem. We compress those two terms often when we talk about it and simply refer to Boaz as the kinsman redeemer. There's a particular word behind it. It's the same word is used later in Scripture to describe the Lord. Job may be one of the more famous ones. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And it is exactly the same word. And and Naomi says, we've got one of those. It's a critical role. It's given to Israel in the law, Leviticus 25.25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. So a kinsman, the nearest relative, redeems the land. And then in Deuteronomy 25.5, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall take her to himself as a wife. Now technically Boaz is not Elimelech's brother. He's just of the clan. So he doesn't have any actual duty to marry Naomi, much less Ruth, to support them, to redeem their land. But the idea that family members should do these sorts of things was well established in Israel. To, to take financial responsibility for a widow, to take social responsibility for a widow. And the introduction of Boaz as just such a kinsman is a signal by the author that there is much more hope for Naomi than she ever thought. He's countering Naomi's claim that my life will just be forever bitter. And Naomi gets it. 
her excited exclamation that the Lord's kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead is a very telling phrase. It means that the living, and in this story, it's Naomi and Ruth. They're the living. They'll be cared for. They're not going to starve. They're not going to be destitute. The Lord's kindness has not forgotten the living. But what about the dead? Elimelech, Malon, Chilion. How do you not forget them? Well, in context, the way you do not forget them is not letting the name be blotted out. A son is raised up. In those words, Naomi is already thinking ahead to say, maybe there's a marriage in Ruth's future. Maybe there's a son in her future. And she is just excited beyond description. The first hope, financial support, is the focus of Leviticus 25. And the second, to be married and have a family again and raise up a son is the hope of Deuteronomy 25. And both needs are to be met in the person of the kinsman redeemer. And one just showed up. Three observations in closing. First thing, I want you to see the fruit of Naomi's view of God. We saw last week that when she was bitter, when she lost everything, she said, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's verse 13 of chapter 1. Like Job, she understands the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. That had to hurt, but she clung to that truth that God is in control. And because she did, she's now in a position to see that he's in control of this as well. It's not a coincidence. She didn't say, thank our lucky stars when Ruth comes home with a bushel of barley and the news that it came from Boaz. She said, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. In other words, God is at work. He was at work when her husband died. He's at work when Boaz shows up. To put it another way, if you try to soften the hard blows of providence by saying, well, this, this really wasn't God, then you might be inclined to say the grace that eventually comes, well, this was just coincidence as well. Naomi doesn't believe in coincidence. Her hope isn't just that a relative might come on the scene and help them. Her hope is in God, a sovereign God who rules over it all, who gives husbands, takes husbands, and now is about to give another husband. That's how Naomi sees it unfolding, and she's in a position to recognize all these good things as coming from God because she never ran from the truth that the hard things come from him as well. Second thing, I want you to see that the pedigree of Ruth is brought out again and again in the story. If you were here last week or if you just read Ruth, in chapter 1, verse 4, it describes her as being from Moab. I don't think anybody that was here last week showed up this week and says, oh, I, I forgot that. I forgot she was a Moabitess. No, it's, it's in the story very clearly. And yet, in the last verse in chapter 1, we're told that Ruth is a Moabitess who returned from the land of Moab. Two verses later, chapter 2, verse 2, we're again reminded that she is Ruth the Moabitess. 
and not content with just those repetitions, the author again tells us in verse 6 that Ruth is the Moabite woman who returns from Moab. And yet once more in verse 21, she is Ruth the Moabitess. It is relentless of him telling you something that you already know. She's from Moab. She's from Moab. She's from Moab. Why? Because he does not want us to forget what Ruth knows so well, that she is from a people that have no claim on the God of Israel. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? I am not one of your servants. And note in verse 7, she asks permission to reap. Why? Why ask permission when the law says to the farmers, you must let them reap? Do not glean to the edges of your field. Don't take all the grain. Leave it for the widow. Leave it for the alien. Ruth knows she's more than a widow and more than an alien. She's a Moabitess. And they were never to seek her welfare. And so when she begins to see favor being shown to her, it puts her on her face in humility and in thanksgiving. And the author wants us to see that. He wants us to see the favor and the grace that's coming to Ruth as the kind of favor and grace that overcomes a curse and invites the outcast to sit and eat with their kinsman redeemer. That's the kind of redemption that God wants modeled. Ruth is a story of God smiling on an outcast who has no right to expect his smile. And not just Ruth, but Israel, especially in the time of Judges, has no right to expect the smile of God, yet God is smiling. And the reverberations of that smile, as we'll see in chapters 3 and 4, will be seen and preached for all eternity. When the apostles began to teach and preach about Jesus and explain the gospel and plant churches, all they had in the way of scripture was the Old Testament. Where do you think they might have gone to illustrate a gospel that shows favor and kindness to a people that do not deserve it? Where might they have gone to explain a mercy that overcomes the curse of sin and a love that removes that curse, that redeems, protects, provides, that draws the outcast into just a glorious covenant relationship that they had no claim to. I think there's a reason why we're told repeatedly that Ruth is a Moabitess, even as she is the object of kindness and affection from her kinsman, Redeemer Boaz. The law condemns her, and Boaz redeems her. This is woven into the story to prepare God's people in every age to just better understand the gospel. The lifting of the curse of sin through the sacrifice of Christ, the one that the entire concept of kinsman-redeemer was modeled after. Paul wrote to the Galatian church, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And that's why Jesus is so much better than Boaz. Boaz can be kind. He can overlook Ruth's status as an outsider. He can love her. He can redeem land. He can marry the widow but he cannot redeem her soul. He cannot do anything about her guilt before God. 
no matter how kindly he treats Ruth, how deeply he loves her, he cannot remove the sting of death and the day of judgment that follows. But Jesus can. And the reality always, always does so much more than the shadow. Make no mistake, Boaz is a glorious shadow. He's there in the story. He's godly, kind. He's a kinsman redeemer. He pours himself out in love to rescue Ruth and Naomi. But Ruth and you and I need something more. We don't just need economic security and a godly spouse, gifts though they be. We need another, better kinsman redeemer that can remove the curse of sin that's on Ruth and you and me and all of humanity and every last stain that that curse causes. So as we close today, I just want to emphasize once more, Boaz exists that we might better understand the work of Christ. Ruth exists that we might better understand ourselves and the curse that hangs over us. And his love for her and his care for her and his redemption of her in the face of this curse exists that we might better understand the gospel. If you're not seeing gospel themes, especially just here in chapter 2, but it will get better and better, I just want to urge you to look more closely. They're there, and they are glorious. I do want to end with one contrast. Boaz fell in love with Ruth because he had heard and then seen that she was an excellent woman. She's an incredible woman. That's not why God loves you. That's not why he sets his love upon us. We, we are not worthy. We are not like Ruth in the story. He did not send his son to die for us because we were so good, but because we were so bad. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is better than Boaz precisely because he died to rescue an unworthy bride. And if you like Boaz in the story, you're going to love Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for such a glorious, encouraging, humbling, challenging story. We're only halfway through, but already the beauty of this story is becoming evident. This is a story that is going to end well, better than we could ask or imagine. And I just pray that as this story unfolds, we see the gospel. We understand better the kinsman redeemer. Boaz is a great shadow but he's not the reality. Ruth is a great shadow, but also not the reality. There's more that needs to be learned and taught and understood to fully appreciate the story. I pray you'll take us there. We are a more tragic figure even than Ruth, but we have a better Boaz. His name is Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. Won't you stand with me?